0: And now, the moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I am, uh, I'm going to tell you in advance, I'm outrageously excited about the fact that Tim Ferris is going to be here soon. But I'm also uh, pretty unprepared, the most unprepared I've ever been for one of these um, on a certain level, because uh, he called me or texted me an hour ago and said, I'm in the city. You want to do a podcast? And uh, the answer, of course, was yes, because I'm a huge fan of Tim's. I was on his podcast a few weeks back, and we had a great conversation that, that he led about uh, overcoming rejection and about, uh, I guess, finding your creative North Star. And Tim is a totally remarkable person. Uh, you know, He wrote the four-hour work week, which became an international... Uh, enormous bestseller he followed it up with the four-hour body which is somehow even though it seems impossible even more influential and important he then figured out a way to self-publish or publish through amazon we'll talk about it the the four-hour chef which maybe in certain ways didn't go as well but his website his and maybe it didn't go as well um just by traditional standards. I want to ask him about that a little bit. But the the fact of the matter is, this guy is a gigantic cultural force. And I think he's also a force for good. Uh, I think that he is genuinely engaged in the process of helping people find a way to get the most out of the time that they're, they're here. Uh, I wish I had... So I've prepared, because I've read all his books, and I've spent a lot of time on his website, and I know him. Uh, and... Uh, so I'm prepared in that way. I'm, I'm not prepared in that uh, I have not had time to really uh, grind on the question. so maybe a little freewheeling, but I think we'll be okay. Hang in with me uh, and let me know what you think of it. Um, on Twitter, I'm Brian Koppelman. And uh, appreciate all the comments uh, and reviews you guys leave on iTunes. Really encouraging to me. And uh, keep it all coming. Thanks. Tim will be here in a second. He'll probably walk in doing squats or uh, plyometric push-ups. I don't even know if that's a thing. I don't even know if there's such a thing as a plyometric push-up. Maybe I made it up. Anyway, he'll be here soon. Thanks for listening. Hey Tim, good to
1: see you, man. Good to see you too. It's, it's been a while.
0: Is, yeah, it's been a while. I mean, we connected. Uh, we've been uh, in touch a lot lately, but not in person.
1: Yeah. And here we are. Which I guess is how okay. you
0: how you sort of conduct a lot of your life.
1: Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I'm interacting with so many people in so many places, it's just easier to try to manage it virtually. But part of the enjoyment of living in a place like New York City or San Francisco where I live is that you have pretty much at, at arm's length or fing- at your fingertips so many interesting people. And, of course, the in-person the in-person conversation is so fundamentally different than doing something over the phone.
0: It is, but I wonder if you, because you live so much in that other world, are able to almost
1: create for yourself simulacra that's like, You know, that is almost there. I think you can get close. I think that you can use things like Skype video. You can use Hangouts. You can use any number of gambits or mechanisms to try to create the type of rapport that you would otherwise only be able to achieve in person. But it takes practice, like anything else. I mean, I know a number of companies, for instance, that I'm involved with, like Automatic, which is behind WordPress.com and also works on the core of WordPress. They have 100, uh, I think 150, 200 people who are all distributed. The entire company is distributed. But they still have one uh, annual all-hands-on-deck meeting where they bring people in from God knows how many, you know, 20, 30 countries.
0: Yeah, I wonder if those people all feel like they know each other before they get together. And then I wonder what happens, you know, that mm-hmm. that thing when they meet, how long that
1: period of sort of um, adjusting the image they're carrying around. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a great question. I mean, there's there's an entire book about this company uh, called The Year Without Pants, uh, which is a journalist's experience working for the company for a year. And uh, what I've noticed, at least they've done really effectively, is they've created internal tools to help people not only communicate more effectively, but build that type of community and rapport. So they have internal chat tools that they've developed Specifically to avoid problems of email, but also to allow people to get to know one, each other, oh, uh, one another in a more natural way.
0: Yeah, the, the it, it's interesting straddling. Uh, you know, a lot of guys. I was I was talking to somebody yesterday. I was on somebody's podcast, and they were talking about how uh, they were talking about me and how how I've even though I'm 48 years old, how I've sort of straddled somehow these 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 different worlds because the world i grew up in Mm -hmm. is entirely different but but i'm i love the fact that you can extend the interpersonal relationships in this way no part of it seems to me like oh a decision to increase the ways and it's just like oh we can be friends in this other way is I, i think it's just it's um only additive i i don't even understand ways in which it's it's not considered additive
1: sure no i 100 agree i mean it's it's allowed me for instance through twitter and other platforms and i'm sure you've seen this to connect with people uh, on a psychographic level as opposed to as a geographic level meaning i can connect with people who had we been born in the same town could have been my best friends but separated by space they might live in spain or in new york or and i connect with them via twitter get to know them more develop let's say a direct messaging relationship then go to phone then we meet up in san francisco new york it's like holy this this is this is sort of a a true brother or true sister cut from the same cloth and that really has has not been possible prior to a lot of these technologies existing well yeah and it really does um
0: extend and change the meaning of the word friend. I had someone recently describe me as uh, their friend, and I had to think about it for a second. You're like no, we're acquaintances. <laughs> well, I was, uh, yeah. Well, there's. I mean, like I still go by the old Don Corleone definitions. Right, so right. I basically have high one. Bar. Yeah. I, a I'm high, not your. High, I'm not
1: your friend either. <laughs> high, friend is a, a high bar.
0: But no. But 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 really, um, the uh, the fact is, y- the, you think about it. Yeah, by by any sort of old standard, the amount of touches that we have, the interconnected, uh, the interconnectedness that we have, the way we're have the same frames of reference, we're looking at the same material, we're commenting on the same stuff. Yeah, I guess, but we are, for, you know, that not you. Know, I'm not saying you and I we've right. actually interacted in yeah. real life, but the, you are able to build these things, and I I think it's very important in, in talking to you or because you've, within all that, actually built a community around a series of beliefs and ideas of
1: your own. Definitely. And, I mean, to the extent that I walk that talk is the extent to which that group remains cohesive also. Uh, so if you, if you look at, for instance, uh, an assistant that I worked with for a very long time, she lived in rural Canada. I didn't meet her until after three or four years of working together had not had one one person in-person contact and it didn't i don't feel it negatively affected our working relationship in any way Uh, it was nice to meet her i enjoyed meeting her but it wasn't a for our particular work objectives it wasn't a necessary ingredient it was additive it was nice it was pleasant but it wasn't necessary and i think that when people start to realize the 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 relationships or resources assets access that can help them, not only in achieving their goals, but in appreciating what they have and just a, a higher quality of life, are not limited to what they grew up with. They're not limited to their alumni network from their high school or college. It's really empowering. Do uh, so you think it was empowering for
0: the assistant? Was it the assistant? At, you said her, right? It was a, her, a yeah. woman. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think that it's um, that, that person loses anything by not um, having a certain kind of inter- you know active... 3D interpersonal relationship or or
1: not? In this particular case, I think it was uh, entirely to her benefit because she had, uh, she was a single mom, she had two young kids, she really enjoyed the quality of life in rural Canada. Uh, She was near a, a vineyard and could take all the time that she wanted to be with her kids. And as long as she accomplished her work, I didn't care about when she clocked in or clocked out. It was about checking off boxes of to-dos and projects that she'd committed to assisting with or or, or quarterbacking entirely. So I, th- I it was completely 100% empowering for her. And that's true also for my current assistant, has three kids and yeah. wants to spend a lot of time with them and similar arrangement. Uh, she just happens to be located in the U.S. It's really interesting this balance that you strike and that you encourage other people to strike and I think it's at times
0: it's hard for people to carry both ideas in their heads at the same time which is this tremendous amount of self-reliance but also this need to trust mm-hmm. others to take on more and more responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so how do you how do you think about how do you think about that and how does somebody who is as self-reliant and, and focused um, on improvement as you are and mm-hmm. on achieving the goals set out. How do you... What is the process by which you're able to release truly... I mean, you've written about it, but really let go and then at the same time truly
1: empower someone mm-hmm. to go and do? Sure. So I would say there are a, a few ways to approach this. So the question of self-reliance is... Uh, opens up a number of related concepts. I think it's very valuable to be self-reliant so that in a worst-case scenario, you can manage your life and survive, whether that means physically in the woods, uh, in a plane crash scenario, or in Hurricane Sandy in, uh, say, rural Long Island where you go without power for a week, or professionally, if you, say, get downsized in a company-wide uh, firing and need to make meet, uh, ends meet. Uh, it, it's you should develop this skill sets and relationships that allow you to be self reliant. However, I think there is a a cult of independence that can be detrimental when people view themselves as completely independent from everything around them. And I was reading uh, some writing of Wendell Berry's. He's a very interesting philosophical. And pragmatic writer talks a lot about agriculture, and he said that, you know, rather than independence, we should think of responsible dependence or irresponsible dependence. We are all interdependent. And this sort of American, not uniquely American, but conventionally thought of as American concept of of uh, independence and self-reliance, sometimes... It gets m- miswielded and allows people to ignore the co- they say environmental consequences of their actions, uh, which eventually comes full circle and bites them in the ass. Uh, so, so that's that's sort of part A. Part B, in terms of empowering people, I think that uh, I'll try to keep it short. Yeah, you don't have to. That's part A, though, in terms of the sort of global piece of
0: it. But mm-hmm. per, per, uh, I'm interested in how somebody whose motor revs as high as yours does. Right. Is able to actually, this second part, to actually... Yeah, you're clearly self... So that you clearly have developed those tools. hmm But largely initially by yourself. Sure. Mm-hmm. So the training to then mm-hmm. be sort of dependent, interdependent, however you want to say it. Yeah. How you broke that down for
1: yourself. Well, I, I was... Uh, I think that there are... If you look at, say, and this isn't going to get super esoteric, don't worry, but if you look at, say, warfare... If this
0: audience can handle it, okay, go wherever cool. you want so, to go.
1: So I've been, I've been uh, listening to um, and reading a lot about uh, Genghis Khan. I'm, Genghis I'm lost. Khan. Now I'm lost. Yeah, you're now lost. Now I'm lost. All right, no, but just no, in, yes. in warfare, you have strategy and tactics, among other things. And so if you have tactics, which are the battle battlefield techniques, and then you have the strategy, which is, say, getting planning those different battlefields, orchestrating movement between those battlefields, choosing the battles, et cetera. It's a much higher level skill set. And I think for me, I was fortunate to, uh, to uh, compete in athletics and have a number of coaches who helped me develop these sort of philosophical underpinnings that would allow me, effectively stoic philosophy, that would allow me to weather storms. It's right, so a very high-level set of principles and beliefs that allows me to weather storms and just get up after being beaten down repeatedly, which I think is, at the highest level, a, a prerequisite for everything that follows. Then, in terms of the tactics, I really didn't have many business mentors. It was mostly reading. I mean, I read books like Losing Your Virginity from Richard Branson, and then I went and re- read books like, uh, what is it called, The, uh, the Seven-Day Weekend or something like that by Ricardo Semler, who's a really famous Brazilian entrepreneur and uh, I think it was Body and Soul, which was about the body shop and Anita erotic. I read these books, highlighted the hell out of them, took copious notes, and then I just made a practice of testing these things and eventually put together my playbook that worked for me. And so it was really a, a function of trial and error, but for that trial and error to ultimately lead to best practices, you have to be able to get back up when you get knocked down. And that came from learning to view failure as feedback, through sports and also high-level academics
0: learning to change the meaning of failure exactly
1: exactly not as a terminal uh the end sort of end card on the movie of your life but as a coach giving you feedback or the world giving you feedback
0: and like, you you learn to do that you think through having some rough failures early hmm
1: and specifically through sports, I think that even if you were never an athlete or viewed yourself as an athlete, practicing some type of physical skill, where to improve, it is a required that you, you know, fail in sort of air quotes, uh, to get your ass kicked by better players. For instance, is hugely psychologically strengthening. It's uh, it's in, in incredibly empowering to realize that whether it's writing, I I mean, I remember, God, I took this seminar with uh, John McPhee, who's... One of the great nonfiction writers who ever lived. Just incredible, incredible. His book about Arthur Ashe. Oh, is uh, one yeah. of the levels, my favorite levels, levels of the game
0: is one an essential. Uh, uh, there's nobody listening to this who yeah. wouldn't get something out of this slim volume oh, so by bad. John McPhee. So but bad. he also writes yeah. about uh, wrote about nuclear it, it, everything. Plymouth Rock, about oranges, imaginable for the New York canoes, of, yeah, forever. So from you took a class with McPhee. Well, I,
1: I took a, a nonfiction writing class with McPhee as an undergraduate, and uh, it was called the Literature Fact. And when we, when we all got our first writing assignments back with his edits, I just remember <laughs> scanning around the table and seeing people who were receiving the papers before I got mine. And I was like, oh, no, this is not going to be good. <laughs> and there was more red ink than the original black ink, his red ink. It was he had written more than we had originally put down on paper. But,
0: yeah, and these are Prince. I mean, these are Princetonians, And he said, "Look,
1: yeah, and he I don't want you guys to be really demoralized. You're already good writers, but you can be better.' And I think that, unfortunately, and uh, feel free to, to to rein me in, but I'll just say this really briefly. You know, in the U.S., we as a as a society seem to have arrived at a place where we believe it's empowering and helpful to other people to give them a pat on the back and a good job even if they get 17th place and you do not make people better by doing that you are negatively reinforcing bad you're you're positively reinforcing bad habits and I was fortunate to have a handful of people in my life who, including my parents of course who cared enough gave enough of a damn to be a hard ass and to say, no, I'm not going to accept that because you can do better. And I know you can do better, so I'm going to help you slash force you to be better.
0: Well, yeah, yeah, because <laughs> what, what, what happens is, and I, I relate to this, you know, you don't have kids yet, but I have two kids, mm-hmm. right? So you think about this stuff a lot as, as you have them. And, mm-hmm. and if you're observant, and, and as writers, we... we we end up being observed, whether we want to or not, there's yeah. a a part of, of the way that we, even when we're fully engaged, there's a little part of us that's observing. Sure. Um, and I've thought a lot about the participation trophy. Mm-hmm. Um, I've really thought a lot about this. And I know where it came Having being a kid of the 70s, I understand where it came from. And actually, like many uh, ideas, it came from a very, I think, a very noble and good place. If you think about the legacy of the 50s, mm-hmm. the legacy of post-war like achievement at all costs, drill sergeant-type coaches, kids who were outcasts, who weren't just told they're playing badly, you have to perform better, but who were told they were losers and right. weak and would never amount to anything, right? Mm-hmm. Because the the second half of what happened in the 70s and 80s, the kind of personal improvement uh, uh, talk, you know, the sort of wider acceptance of the validity of some kind of psychological practice uh, being useful. The sort of actually considering the effect of the ways we talk to kids, which wasn't even written about pre-World War Two, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you had Janice Ian writing songs like it's uh, at 17 about not being picked for the basketball team and feeling like an ugly loser. Mm-hmm. And you can see why then people thought, in, you know, what, what they should have done, the way to remediate that is... Let's talk, let's speak to these kids who don't win differently. Mm-hmm. Let's give them a different message about not winning. But instead right. it became, let's make them all winners. And all the right. problem with that, I agree with you, Tim, right. is I would watch with my kids early on. They knew it was a joke when they would get a participation trophy. Right. They hated it. Yeah. And you would watch the parents who encouraged it and I, you would see something in these kids die. Yeah.
1: Huh?
0: And it's the, uh, it's you're telling them we don't think you can ever be good enough right to win mm-hmm. um and now for me i'm a you know i'm i'm a liberal so uh, and i you know that's the, the i i really believe in that that uh the, you know there, there has to be a, a way to help people get make the playing field even but as a culture i agree we've just taken it yeah too far and look what you do in your work is try to tell people i think here are ways in which you
1: can even the playing field. Yeah, or uh, the way I might put it is, here's a way you can get extraordinary results with mediocre raw materials. And I think people underestimate that. And the way, in my mind, to empower people is, like you said, with your kids who who know on some level that this participation trophy, trophy is a joke, and it sort of devalues the entire thing. Uh, if you sit down, I'll give you an example, and this might be a bit of a a harsh example for some people, but I've watched tens of thousands of people attempt various diets and even done, uh, helped with some research with startups and UC Berkeley with doing randomized studies. Like I've seen a ton of data about what works and what doesn't, what persists and what doesn't in diet. And at the end of the day, if you sit down with someone who is, uh, morbidly obese, knows there's a problem, and you tell them, you know what, it's okay, it's not your fault, none of this is your fault because of society, this, and genetics, that, on some level they know that's bull****, and they, they don't need someone to enable uh, the rationalization of their condition by saying that type of thing. And when I've said to people, for instance, through the books, which I do in The 4-Hour Body, uh, cause I've been a big boy before, you know, I'm 170 now, but I've been, I've been 220. I mean, not, you know, morbidly obese, pre-diabetic, but I like peanut butter sandwiches and pizza and ice cream and all that stuff. Uh, when I sit down with someone, I'm like, look, okay, cool. Like I can help you there. This is not a mystery. Like biochemistry can be hacked and there are very basic tools. If you want to lose 20 pounds in a month or lose 200 pounds in total, I can show you exactly how to do that. And it's replicable. Uh, this has been done by thousands of people, but first, like you, you are fat. It's a consequence of certain microbehaviors, behaviors and we have to fix those microbehaviors. And they're like, cool, I got it. Right? It's like you don't have to be worried about their head exploding and their ego shattering because I say, look, you're fat. Like, let's just get on the same page first. It's not because you're big boned. It's not because of, or, yeah. you know, society's pressure. like, you eat M&Ms before you go to bed. You're fat. So, like, let's fix
0: it. One of the great ways you can build rapport with somebody is by when they know that you have their best interests yeah. at heart, you can be, being honest is a really powerful mm-hmm. tool. I remember... An, yeah, if you care. If it's clear that you I care. I mean, as a director, I, I, I think a lot about how to talk to actors and I think in the beginning... And and every actor is different, and you have to really, you do think about each person psychologically. I mean, if you're doing this well, like Steve Nash talks about being a point guard and how you really look at each player. But um, I've talked to various actors who've worked with Woody Allen, uh, and forgetting Woody Allen's personal life for a minute. um, Woody Allen as a director is one of the greats who ever lived. And uh, Woody Allen just goes up to them after a take. Sometimes he goes, that was terrible.
1: (laughs) 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 <laughs>
0: it's you know <laughs> hard, hard to imagine yeah. being a, an actor on the receiving end of that, but in a way, it's saying, "Look, we're in it together." I picked you to do the movie. Yeah, yeah. We have to solve this. Yeah, uh, we have to solve this problem. Right, this problem together. Right. So that makes total sense to me. But I wanna, I wanna return. You know. Um, too
1: because you and i look for the same thing with my writing for by the way when i ask friends who are good writers for feedback the worst the biggest disservice they could give me is by saying oh yeah no this is really great this is nice like good luck but they secretly think that paragraphs 6 14 and 12 are pieces of i need to hear that i cannot tell you how important what you just said
0: is in any area of professional development Um, and especially writer writer, I have people uh, tweeting me all day about this asking me this question all all day long and it's like um, because I'll say to people don't get feedback from people who you know are going to be destructive it's like the Julia Cameron thing if you know there are people who are going to hate it because they some part of them is competitive with you don't show it to them right Right. but once you decide I'm in the zone of comfort and safety Mm -hmm. I'm going to I need feedback from this person you want the most limited positive feedback yeah. possible. Uh, this can work. Yeah, Here's yeah. why this can work. Here are the problems. Yeah. I don't, I only want when I send something to a, a, a professional, I want them to rip me to shreds. Yeah. The work. I know it's not me they're ripping to shreds. It's the work they're yeah. giving me their time, and it's. I mean, that's essential.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like a, you know, a good CEO i mean many have said this in different words but one of uh, one of the ceos i work with uh said you know i don't i don't want to hear about all the good stuff he's like tell me about the bad stuff because the good stuff will just take care of itself (laughs) (laughs) but
0: but i'm interested in how you might here's what i'm interested in um i mean i'm interested in all of it as you know i i I read every word you write and i've been you know I, i reached out to meet you years ago um because I thought maybe there was a movie in it, and then we sort of uh, found some uh, mutual affinity and have, uh, uh, you know, talked to each other about a bunch of stuff. But Mm -hmm. the thing that uh, I want to know is how do you manage you now? How going through this thing where you've become, and as someone who's really aware of all the traps and pitfalls, because you were a successful entrepreneur before and got caught up and lost yourself a little bit. Mm -hmm. How do you protect yourself from
1: becoming Tim Ferriss in quotes? <laughs> or with a registered trademark. Uh, actually, that part's kind of important. But the, uh, the, with, with the quotation marks, I would say there are a few ways that I do that. Uh, and it's a really important question because I see people get lost in the stage persona. And that's a horrible place to live. Um, yeah. So putting aside the challenges of being a public-facing Entity or person, uh, of which there are many, but I'm not going to moan about it because it's added so much to my life. The, you know, the books have really, I've had a fortunate stretch and it's, it's been an incredible ride, but putting aside all like the stalkers and weirdos and that kind of danger and creepy stuff, uh, there are a few things i've done. So one is i've i've ensured that i can never run for public office in any place than perhaps san francisco <laughs> by openly talking about <laughs> drugs and putting out drunk tweets and uh sort of champ you know celebrating the the fact that i'm i'm going on like a, a, a hot streak of of drunken tweets. I I really i put enough out there so that i feel i don't have a uh, running for office image to preserve, and so you know what—that's what, a form of theater too, though. Well, but here's the thing: what that allows me to do, it gives me the freedom to be myself, as as opposed to trying to conform to a caricature that I've created for myself. Yeah. and uh, so the the highest compliment that I can get, uh, in this. Uh, There're probably many, but the first one that comes to mind is when someone meets me and they go, "Wow, like you're so down to earth. Like you're just like I thought you'd be. Like that's really wild." And right. I'm like, yeah, because I go out of my way if I'm doing a Q and A on stage or I'm doing a keynote to not try to be someone else. And it took a while. And the, I think the 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 uh, the gauntlet that I ran through that really sort of beat me into submission on this, where I realized like the only Choice I have if I want to not only be successful, and that's a whole other rat's nets, but to feel successful, which I think is arguably more important. Uh, when writing the four hour work week, I had to just be myself. So the first four or five chapters that I wrote were the most god awful, sort of pompous ass Princetonian, multisyllabic sludge. It was so bad that I just tossed it. And then I I was like, No, 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 it's way too serious. I have to be funny. I have to be funny. And then I put out like the most If huh. you if you can imagine, like you, you take good funny writing, like maybe some of Dave Barry's stuff or uh Dave Foster Wallace. Yeah, Foster Wallace. And then you just made it 10 times worse as a Me Too, like slapstick Three Stooges yeah. product, that's what I then did for another four to five chapters. I was like, Jesus, this is so terrible, and I threw it out. And then I started writing, and I decided at one point, I'm like, all right, I'm just going to have two glasses of wine, no more. That was my rule, because it definitely does not get better with volume. I'm going to have two glasses of wine, and then write as if I'm writing an email to one or two of my closest friends about uh, a very like an important serious email but to two of my closest friends and i had two very specific friends of mine i had one friend who was running his own company and felt trapped inside of it and another close friend who was in investment banking and similarly was just he was he was slowly securing these golden handcuffs and he was miserable but he was making a lot of money and so on and so forth and so I, i wrote i started writing these chapters specifically to these two guys and it was only at that point that I started to sound like myself on paper. Uh, and so you then worked
0: to make sure there was a unity between that... The guy who ended up being on the page, which was anyway, uh, had a lot of u- unity with who you really are. Yeah. And then you tried to hew to that in, in your interactions with the public. Mm-hmm. That's one way,
1: but with... Your particular, can I add one more
0: thing? Please, like as I, many as you
1: want. Yeah, the other thing I would add is that I, th- I think part of the reason I uh, and, we, and we both know people who are in the limelight. Uh, I think part of the reason that some people paint themselves into a corner into becoming something they're not is they are they have a uh, opportunistic short term focus on revenue opportunities so they try to you know monetize as the word would be in silicon valley these days their brand their personal brand their book their this their whatever and they do it too early and as a result they uh jump on opportunities with say products or services that are really incongruent with who they are fundamentally but that present dollar signs and uh i feel like the longer you delay that and there are many ways to go about building a career i'm not saying my way is the right way but for me i delayed so much of that for so for as long as possible so that i would continue to put out content interact with my audience and that would reinforce me acting myself being myself publicly stating my values so that when it got to a point when i finally decided okay to keep this ship afloat i need to do some things to generate revenue I was forced, by virtue of being held accountable by my audience, to be who I truly was. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that that what you were selling was authentically who you are. Right. And that's what they bought into. So it it would reinforce the need to be authentic. Yeah. But the, the flip side, and I, I I know you had Neil Strauss on, on your podcast, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I think your podcast is terrific, and I'm so happy that you're doing Thank uh, you, yeah. a podcast.
1: Thank uh, you for being on it, by the way. It was, it was a blast. Uh, yeah. It was
0: really fun to do, and the feedback's been so... It's been great They're hearing people sort of engage with, with what we talked about. But um, but, but you and... and, and when, when I look at Neil, mm-hmm. who's someone I know pretty well yeah. and like a great deal, mm-hmm. Um the fact that that uh, his relationship with his, his audience
1: mm-hmm.
0: is one um it's a pretty one directional relationship
1: mm-hmm.
0: where he is you know uh, um in a way taking these these people and trying to teach them a series of things about how to live mm-hmm. B- but i think sometimes it's hard for neil to take that cape off because he could see them at any time mm-hmm. there's and I've, I've, I've watched him, I think, up close, mm-hmm. just struggle a little bit with that. Does mm-hmm. that make any sense t- yeah. to you? Yeah, yeah, sure. So you, mm-hmm. uh, while not dealing in the same, you know, in the, in the sort of waters that Neil's dealing
1: in, but mm-hmm. you are um, a modern age guru. Right, which I think makes both uh, me and Neil uncomfortable on some very fundamental level. Uh, and that comes out when perhaps we're confronted. Confronted is the wrong word. When we encounter fans who believe that we can answer all of their questions and solve all of their problems, which is simply not the case.
0: How do you stop yourself from um,
1: believing that you can? Uh, you know, this might sound odd, but... It's it's the antithesis of what I'm trying to achieve, so I'm not, I don't find it hard at all. Like what I want to do is to I want to empower people with a toolkit that is flexible, so that if they want to learn a language in a you know, one tenth the time that uh, it's purported to take, or run an ultra marathon, or whatever these things are that I've deconstructed, right? Losing f- losing 100 pounds over you know, six to 12 months, all these things that I've 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 tested and repeated so many times that I can confidently say, this is a recipe. You do not need to hire me as your personal chef to come in and cook for you because I just gave you exactly what works. Yes. And this should represent, this should represent freedom to you. You do not, the last thing I want my readers or audience or fans to think is that they are dependent on me for answers. I'm like, no, I just gave you the toolkit. You can now build anything I can build. Isn't it hard when but the fact that there are but a lot of people don't want to do the hard thinking. Yes, they want a magic solution, a silver bullet, and uh, I think there's been a lot of misconception about say, the four hour title you know the moniker and there's a lot of background behind it i won't bore everyone with with where that came from you
0: can you talk about it in the book so yeah i talk well, about
1: someone it. can find the answer
0: to that in the yeah,
1: books. and it's but it's about maximizing your per hour output and then what you choose to do with this currency or uh, non-renewable resource that is time is then up to you and so a lot of let's say hedge fund managers are not going to work four hours a week but they they do want to 10x their output and work the same number of hours uh, so I'm not a an advocate of idleness. I'm an advocate of doing things intelligently instead of stupidly. <laughs> and uh, uh, But there are some people who don't want to do anything at all. And I'm like, no, no, no. I told you you could learn a language and I can show you how to do it in eight weeks and be conversationally fluent as opposed to in eight years. That's very achievable. And there are many people I can point to as exemplars of how to do that. But I can't just snap my fingers and sit down with you for an hour and give you a blue pill and have you be fluent in Spanish. You actually do have to put in some effort and work. And a lot of people just don't want to do it at all. And so
0: how do you deal with the both sides of that? The, the, you know, people who want to, you know, obviously every day people come up to you and tell you how you've helped them and
1: changed their lives for the better. And I... Uh, I'm sure that that feels. That's amazing. It's the only reason I keep writing. I find writing so goddamn hard. <laughs> but, it, yeah, I mean, that's that's the only fuel that keeps me going. It's not financial. I can do it. I mean, the the other things would be far more guaranteed. Well, you to
0: about 10xing your time. Writing is yeah. not 10xing well, no, your no, time.
1: No. Well, it's not, not 10xing your income either. No, I mean, yeah,
0: I mean, it just can't. Yeah. you can't uh, uh, do that through through writing. But I understand how you process legitimate criticism um, I think you and I go uh, go to a lot of the same sources in a way to have, to have built a framework to process valid criticism. Definitely. But I wonder how in your position, and this goes back to like the guru thing, mm-hmm. you, you process, because I think everybody deals with it, and, and the reason I'm, uh, I'm interested in this is everybody, and it's one of the hardest things people have to deal with, Everybody deals with unfair criticism. Oh, for sure. With somebody across the office mm-hmm. who starts a rumor, mm-hmm. or who doesn't, li- you know, who suddenly decides, oh, you know, his wife's father actually golfs with the president, <laughs> and like, where? And and I think that when people can't fight, when people can't, you know, it's an, an, an illegitimate critique, right? Mm-hmm. It drives people mad. Now you can say, well, I go to stoicism for it, but. But when people call you a con man, a fraud... You know, the stuff that you get... Because, like, um, somebody decides that you say they could eat almonds. So every day they buy blue diamond, salted, roasted almonds. It's ignoring the part where you say almonds are a domino food and you can only eat (laughs) ten of them. And then they decide that you're a a fraud and a guru.
1: How do you not want to go crazy all the time? (laughs) Well, I'd say the first thing is... There are certainly times when I want to go crazy, and it's, it's partially a side effect of my policies with this type of thing, which had to evolve over time, right? I remember the first time—you'll appreciate this—the uh, first—so that my book comes out, 4-Hour week, and I'm just—I'm yeah. a fragile human being, right? I'm so worried and so anxious and so self-conscious. This is my baby. I really want to help people. It's finally come out. And I got my first one-star review on Amazon, which was uh, from a guy, I don't think he even read the book, and it was this long diatribe, all of this personal ad hominem attack, and uh, I, I sat down and wrote this, like, impassioned, sympathetic response, and I was like, dear Todd, or whatever, you know, I understand if you hadn't read blah, 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 and this and that, how you would feel this way, and let me da-da-da, I addressed all of his points, and I think his response was just like, yeah, go. Yourself, and I was like, "What? Like that's what I get is a is a is a compromise after all that effort, you know?" Crocodile tears, and then I realized it's not a very effective way to deal with the situation, particularly once uh, you know it became uh, once I had a, a a stage where I could really become a target, and uh, there are times when you want to go crazy, and uh, th- whenever you have a lot of public exposure. Uh, I don't think it's Neil who said this. I think it was someone else who said, it might have been Neil, who said, like, a third of the people are going to love it, a third of the people are going to hate it, and a third of the people aren't going to care, and it doesn't matter what you put out. That's always going to be the case. And one thing that I try to maintain in my head is a chorus, and this is a philosophical thing, but a very strategic philosophical thing, is it's not about the number of people who don't get it. It's about the number of people who do get it. And that's true for business. It's true for writing. It's true for just about anything.
0: That's a Seth Godin thing. Of yeah, you
1: find your own tribe. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And then, uh, from a pragmatic standpoint, you don't want to respond to a lot of that stuff, especially the uh, sort of the unsubstantiated nonsense. Uh, there are times when I'll respond, but it's very seldom. In a in a world that where discoverability is dictated by Google. By responding to someone, and I have so many people, I cannot tell you, <laughs> who will write articles just to, they'll write hateful articles in the hopes that I will respond and drive traffic sure. so they can then drive advertising dollars from whatever site they happen to be on, or bonuses or whatnot. So I have to bite my tongue and not respond to that, starve those things of oxygen, because if you feed the trolls, you just get more trolls. Yeah, a while back, somebody was writing
0: some bad stuff on Twitter about my, my father, they were tweeting about my dad who's a successful perp my dad's a successful yeah, yeah, businessman yeah. he's been a successful businessman for a long time and i mean came up from nothing and is you know i, I couldn't love him more and i saw these people only had very few followers and they were copying me um, on these tweets and i and i i really wanted to respond yeah and i realized if i responded yep. i would actually give them a pl- they had no platform. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. if I responded, <laughs> I would have gifted them with a platform. Yeah, yeah, and so exactly. the only way to actually defend my dad was by yeah. not defending him.
1: Right. There are definitely different tactics if we get into sort of the trench warfare of of internet conversation, then there are many tactics uh, as well. Uh but I I think that the the best insurance against uh, haters And not all critics are haters. And I think that's something that's right. you and I would agree on. A hundred percent, It's yes. very uh, sort of popular at the moment to label all critics haters. And I think that's throwing out the baby with the bathwater. But the fact of the matter is the Internet gives every genius and every, every idiot a voice. Uh, so there's you get the good with the bad. And uh, if you have an army of true believers who have benefited from benefited from or enjoyed your work... Yeah, you really don't have to respond to much. They'll take care of. Yes, you can. They, they'll, it. they'll they'll sort of uh, police the neighborhood for you, and that's why it's like if anybody and this sounds kind of creepy, maybe, but it's like I've you know millions of of readers out there. So if if someone like the most minute type of thing you can imagine that I would never otherwise see, like for instance, there was this uh, this direct mail campaign going around, like physical mail in the in the uh, Midwest, where someone was trying to sell this. Uh, Biz op, you know, make millions overnight opportunity, right? Like a multi-level marketing thing. Sure. And they had fabricated a quote from me and put it in their materials yeah, as an endorsement, but it wasn't online. It was print. And one of my readers happened to get it, scanned it, put it on Twitter. and was like, Hey, just a heads up. Like, by the way, FYI, this, that, and then also emailed my assistant. So it's like, I have eyes and ears like everywhere. Uh, so I don't, fortunately, I, I really think like put out, there's a great commencement speech. I love it. I mean, I'm a huge uh, fanboy of of Neil Gaiman, no matter what. I mean, the guy's just a tremendous writer and so multifaceted. But he gave a a commencement speech called Make... Well, it's referred to as the Make Good Art commencement speech. Uh, I haven't read it. I have to go oh read God. it. Yeah, go watch the video.
0: I love yeah. I love George Saunders's. I don't yeah. know if you saw that one. Who's uh, one of the you know maybe our greatest living writer, and he he gave a great one about. Con- I'll send you oh, that. Cool. You send me that. Uh, I will.
1: Yeah, and but the the point being, he's, to- he's like you know, wife ran away with the you know salsa dancer. Make good art. Like cat exploded. Make good art. You know, like, whatever. Like business partner. You know, f- fired your favorite five employees. Like make good art. And oh, and I really feel like if you are. Uh, if you focus on your craft and you put out good work, like you want good SEO, put out good content. Like you want, you want to handle criticism well. Like put out good work so that you have an army of supporters who will defend you, and you don't have to lift, lift a finger. And and so, but how do you,
0: how do you? That, that that's all makes sense to me in terms of tactics. Like when you're yeah. talking about tactics, right? But the thing before strategy and tactics, tactics is objective. Right, sure. it's objective strategy, yep, tactics. Sure, and uh, if your objective is to keep g- growing, very often people, when they become, people say, you know, when someone becomes famous, is like kind of the moment at which their growth arrests, mm-hmm. um, because a variety of things want to keep them who they were at that moment, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm I'm wondering now, your work is about growth in many ways. Um but I'm wondering about the emotional work that you do. So that's all the strategy and tactics. I've had a strategy I'm not going to deal with it myself. Tactics my people, you know. Yeah. But how do you sort of frame what your objective is in terms of being reactive versus proactive in those areas and keeping yourself kind of emotionally together through both the adoration
1: and criticism that you get? Yeah, uh, that's a big question. I'd say, uh, first off, I'm not sure that my goal is to grow my brand or media property. Yeah, but I, I'm talking I, about your personal growth. Oh, okay. Um, well, you know, I it's it's uh, I hate to sound like I'm a walking collection of fortune cookies or something, but I really have a handful of maxims that I try to keep in mind, like this uh, uh, like the handful that I mentioned before, another one that I think is really critical to remember is like you're never as bad or as good as they say you are. And I think falling in love with the most over-the-top supporters is as dangerous as taking the most over-the-top detractors seriously. If you start believing that you walk on water, that's when the universe usually, uh, you know, head kicks you really hard and deservedly so. And it's also when you get sloppy. Uh, So I really meditate uh, literally on this a fair amount, and um, it's important not to take... Oh, here's another thing that I do that's very micro, but uh, when I have sort of what I believe is an, an outstanding case study of someone who used what I did and benefited from it and wrote about it or wrote to me about it, or an article that I think is... Not over the top, walk on water, ridiculous, and in, in its praise, but that points out things I could lose sight of when I'm uh, being hit with tomatoes by the virtual d- hater crowd. Uh, I highlight those. I, I save those in the uh, in my in my browser. Uh, at the very top of of sort of the the navigation so that if I'm just having... If if I start to fall into the pit of despair, that I can click on those and just be like, it's fine. There are people who don't hate you. (laughs) You Not everyone thinks that you're the Antichrist or whatever, uh, which I've literally been called, which astonishes me. But um, it's a whole separate story. Uh, So in terms of personal growth, uh, I feel like... One of the biggest challenges for uh, for people who get a lot of attention or have reached a point where they have a, a built-in fan base that will buy uh, pretty much anything they put out uh, is keeping yourself hungry and keeping your feet to the fire so you don't get sloppy. And part of the way that I do that, and it might be self-defeating, I don't know, is I, I deliberately again this could seem really stupid and it might end up being stupid I avoid certain revenue opportunities that would allow me to mass market my stuff because I could take the four hour moniker and I've had many opportunities and license it out and do a uh, you know the equivalent of like the idiot's guide to fill in the blank and print money with it but it would buy nece- I think by necessity certainly require other people do a lot of the writing and the The writing would not be the same. The product, I think, would suffer, even though it might reach more people. And uh, by declining those types of opportunities, it's forced me to continue to focus, I think, on quality, not just quantity.
0: And you're clearly... um, I mean, you're talking about channeling ambition in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I realized a few years ago, we're all... We're all fueled by different things, right? You grew up in a you grew up in a, a town that three months a year was the wealthiest town in America, and <laughs> yeah. in the other eight, uh, uh, nine months a year was a working class town. Yep. And even though I, I don't know that you delve into the psychology of that a lot in in your in your work, you've mentioned enough in your work in a, in a casual way mm-hmm. that there's no question that that
1: fueled you. Oh yeah, I mean, it fueled me. It, it pissed me off. I right. think, and maybe that's the fuel. But uh, I remember. Oh god, I had such hatred for city people <laughs> as a townie, and uh, you know, part of it was the. However, I also, you know, I, I worked as a busboy and yeah, worked in restaurants from like I don't know what fourteen onward, all lobster roll and all these places. And there were, I. It was the entitlement that bothered me, but the self-made people I found fascinating. And I remember, I have such a clear. Brilliant image of this I ended up bussing for uh, Billy Joel at one point you know uh, certainly a self-made guy and three times oh he's amazing yeah and and he would and he would always come in this was the Maidstone Arms and uh, have a cup of coffee read the paper and tip 20 bucks now to me at the time 20 bucks was winning the lottery I mean that was a lot of money yeah and, uh, he was just the coolest cat. And like, if I, I remember I, uh, over, I saw him maybe two or three times and finally I was like, God, I should ask him a question. I was like trying to build up my, my confidence, my courage to do it. And finally I asked him how he met Christy Brinkley. This is a good know, question. This is, Tim. this is back in the day. right? <laughs> and, uh, he was, he, he was in no rush, told me the whole story and just chatted with me for like 20 minutes. And I was just like, wow, I want to be like that guy someday. You know, like he's got, he's got all the success, all the money in the world And he's still, he's still happy to just like kind of indulge a nervous little kid and take his question seriously and give him an answer. I was like, that's so cool. You know,
0: have you run across him?
1: I haven't. I haven't. Yeah.
0: Oh, you definitely will uh, at some point. Have you told that story a lot?
1: No, I have. Oh, that's great. Well,
0: I imagine that that, that uh, someone uh, yes. will tell him. Yeah, if, if uh, about you're li- if you're
1: listening, Mr. Joel. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he's not listening, but maybe yeah. someone will.
0: <laughs> someone in his crew will hear it and like be like, "Hey, Billy, come here. I want you to listen to this two <laughs> seconds."
1: Yeah. These, yeah uh, it was a really you know it, it was a really impactful yeah, moment. This for guy me.
0: from Princeton, Billy. <laughs> he says you inspired the hell
1: out of him. Yeah, you know, a guy used to hang out with all the clamors and the fishermen that Billy that has down been down a Easter, lot of. Mr. Alex, yeah, I'm a huge. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I am uh, like Chuck Klosterman is grandly I'm a huge yeah uh, and uh, yeah, but but the, uh, what that also f- has done for me in a way is realizing that y- y- having fans now who take my words very seriously if I'm in an airport and I'm rushed and I'm having a bad day or whatever and somebody comes up and they want to ask me a question and it's kind of their they feel the same way that I felt when I approached Billy Joel. If I'm just like, ah, I'm really sorry, sorry, f- like I'm too busy, bye, 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 and I'm like kind of brusque about it, that could have really far-reaching effects that I don't, I wouldn't even be conscious of at the time. And so I try to be, I try to be very conscious of that, you know, that you know, with great audience comes great responsibility. I think, and uh, I, I'm not always on. I'm not always you know mr perfect uh but i i I try to take it really seriously
0: yeah and 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 that doesn't make you like i i know i know tony robbins a little bit Mm -hmm. and obviously he's achieved success in this area on a level that very few people ever have and uh um you know when that guy goes and walks in the world it's you know, it's almost it's papal almost, and <laughs> that people throw themselves at his feet, and he does everything he can yeah. to say it's what you say. I'm not that. It's you doing the work, yeah. sir. Not I'm not doing the work. Yeah. But I think it probably hard for Tony to blend into. That's what I'm saying. Hard for <laughs> Tony to like go and um walk through the you know to yeah. to walk through the world, and I imagine has to really think about where i'm going to go you seem to have struck the right uh, a balance for yourself that 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 works but the, the anger that fuels you um that fueled you in the beginning i wonder if because this is the realization i had uh, a few years ago and it was actually in a conversation with tony once um which was that I was fueled for, for different reasons mm-hmm. by an anger for a long time too to prove something, to yeah. prove something right. That's if you're someone who wants to write or create, you know, often it's fueled by not being heard right. in the right way or not being mm-hmm. looked at in the right way or whatever the thing the thing was. That, mm-hmm. And I realized this anger was no longer useful to mm-hmm. me. Yeah, that it, it became it's at it was atavistic. Right. It was it needed to be discarded because it was in the past. Yeah. And, I'm, you know, your ambition is still, so whether you process it or feel it like that, I think anyone who spends 10 minutes with you interacting, it's very clear that, that it still burns for you. And mm-hmm. do you feel like um,
1: you monitor its utility? Yeah, you know, I don't... Uh, I've thought a lot about a lot about anger in the last few years and and aggression and they're not the same thing and i think for a long time i felt they were the same thing and i treated them as if they were the same tool which is unhealthy i think you can be proactively aggressive in a way that might be perceived as fueled by anger but in reality you don't have that negativity um, it's the
0: way in which anger and ambition can get fused when you're young. Yeah. And then you, sometimes people feel like, if I let go of the anger, right. am
1: I going to become a sloth? R- well, exactly. And so, for instance, I mean, and this won't surprise anybody, but I'm extremely impatient. I mean, I am I'm so impatient. I mean, ever since I was a little kid, my mom's always laughed. I'll, we'll be in a restaurant and if... If I love drinking water, I drink a ton of water. My water glass is empty for ten minutes, fifteen minutes like I'll get up, walk into the kitchen, just grab a pitcher, and come back to the table. I just can't stand for it and uh, separating sort of fine slicing these reflexive aspects of yourself is has become very important to me so yes. for instance how is it possible to be productively impatient because I I do think there's a lot of value there in not accepting the status quo if the status quo happens to suck how can you be proactively progressively impatient without being pissed off all the time like how is that is that possible and I've really tried to find that razor's edge to walk on because I don't feel like I if if I didn't feel as if time were fleeting if I weren't on some level sure that I was going to like get hit by a bus tomorrow I wouldn't have the drive that I have, and I'm happy to have it. It doesn't make me unhappy. I get, a lot, I get a lot of excitement and fulfillment from it. But how do you do that without constantly being pissed off by the people who don't cooperate with this great plan that you have? Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that you're like, don't you understand? Like, I could be hit by a bus tomorrow. You know, I can't wait. So, so how two, two do weeks. you uh, Well, I have. Um, number one is trying to delegate. Uh, Number two is trying to, uh, this is not me rhyming like Don King, but like propagate the messaging in such a way that if I can create somehow a thousand people who can teach not just as well as I can, but better than I can, who can deconstruct things, not just as well as I can, but better than I can, so that they can sort of continue to break things down and turn complexity into simplicity and enable people to see their greater potential and not what they've been told their whole lives they can or cannot do, uh, then I don't... The the necessity for me to keep kind of banging the drum decreases.
0: And How did you train yourself to when... And this comes back to like the first thing I was trying to a- ask about, which is someone who is so self-motivated, self-reliant, able to do all the stuff, mm-hmm. when you delegate mm-hmm. and then... to someone you've decided can execute, and the execution falls short, Mm -hmm. how do you train yourself to, even if you have to put out the initial fire? how do you train yourself then to not reflexively go, you know
1: what, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do it. Yeah. Uh, The first thing is uh, trying to really build systems as opposed to transactions. And by transaction, I mean sending off emails ad hoc at all hours or all minutes with random tasks and assignments that's really hard to keep track of and it also doesn't help someone to prioritize so they know what is most urgent or important and uh, you know certainly it's it's easy to be reflexive in that way or ad hoc which uh, puts the blame on the part of the boss more than the employee or the person who's being delegated to Uh I'll just give one very concrete example. I think that, uh, and it's it's very easy to fall out of the habit of using it, but using a tool like Asana or Basecamp instead of email is just a sanity and lifesaver. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, I thought that person was really shitty. Surprise, surprise. It was just because I was like throwing a hundred snowballs at them at one time and expecting them to catch them all. And those links to those things are on your, they're on your website, right? Uh. I sure. can put something up. Yeah, they should be. I mean, if I, mean you, I think if,
0: they are, right? Because you, you've written yeah, those articles. Yeah, where you and talk if,
1: about if you it. go to resources on on my website, then there should there are tons and tons of uh, links like that. So I was on a I, I was uh, on an airplane the other day
0: with a guy, and I mean, I go through the world telling people to buy you know your books, and I've bought them for I so many that. people, and okay. um, I just think they're really useful. I mean, I'm on doing the uh, Four Hour Body now in a very rigorous, disciplined way, and I've been doing it for. Almost two weeks, and I've been making really good progress, though I think I have to ask you one question because I'm too lazy to go back to the book right now. And you're here, so sorry. You're (laughs) sitting in front of me. No problem. Um, But I was sitting on an airplane with a guy. We're going to wrap this up soon, so just Mm -hmm. a few more things. But I was sitting on an airplane next to a guy, a successful young guy, like under 40, a COO of a big financial company. Mm -hmm. And he starts unburdening himself to me as airplane, you know, airplane companions do. And he started saying, you know, all I want in life is to be able to spend three unadulterated hours with my kids, but I have to do these emails all day long. And I, uh, he said, um, you know, I, because I have all these sales guys who work for me, they need answers because manage he managed a retail brokerage. Mm-hmm. And he said, in my business, the amount of emails I have to answer to those guys during the day and then to the chairman and CEO and, and the board at night, he's like, I cannot. And I said, well, there's this tool, you know, if you read this book, and here's why. And he kept saying, I just wish I could. <laughs> and I know that he... And I said, no, no, no you can. You can. Right. There are, I said, there's tons of test cases where it actually will make you... I go, when do you think? When do you plan your strategy? And he said, oh, I I don't have time to think. (laughs) And and I said, dude, what what do you mean? I mean, I know you've had this conversation a hundred times with companies. But what do you think the best tool is? Like, I journal every day and I meditate. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that I take long walks. Those Mm -hmm. are my, like, ways. I know you do similar Mm stuff. But what do you think the best... um, People hear goal setting and it confuses them. And I think it's actually too inexact a term and it's intimidating. But what do you think the best tool to tell the truth to yourself about what you want is? Like, what's the the best way to um, to be accountable to yourself
1: for what your objectives should really be? Well, I think there's the how do you gain clarity and then how do you implement. So there are two pieces. The, yes. f- the first one is there's an exercise I still do to this day. I mean, I call it dreamlining uh, which is is discussed in a couple of chapters in the four hour work week, but the basic idea is uh, you take out say a piece of up of paper. I like to do this manually, and uh, you draw two or three vertical lines dividing the page and uh, for um, actually you, you can start off even 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 simpler. you can write down in the next three years what you want to have what you want to do and what type of person you want to be this would be a collection of characteristics but you have the what do I want to have what I want to do and really uh, and you could even do it for retirement but like go crazy so if you want whatever you want a Lamborghini Gallardo then write it down great you want to ski in Aspen once a year and blah 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 write it down and then what you're going to do is look at the costs of all those things the to do's the to have's the to Bs be or becomes and uh, whether you could finance it or not okay so a Lamborghini Gallardo okay it costs whatever it costs right 400 grand well could you rent could you lease could you join a European sports car club that allows you to put X number of miles on and you start to arrive at a at a specific number and once you have this number and typically I encourage people to Uh, assess it on a monthly basis so to have all these things what would it cost on a monthly basis and a payment plan financing renting whatever it might be and you spec it out and you arrive at what would be your target monthly income if you wanted to experience these things now or in a year or two as opposed to when you retire right which functionally is when you are least capable of of appreciating appreciating and enjoying these things uh, and once you have that target monthly income and this list of things you want to have do, and be, there's very often a lot of clarity that can be gained just by going through that exercise, as I'm sure you've noticed with journaling. Uh just, yes. just getting into a flow. And then in terms of implementation, uh that's a bit of a longer discussion. Yeah, we maybe can a, do that maybe next a part time. two. Yeah. But but
0: the but the, the the executive who has this guy has enough money to buy himself a Lamborghini and yeah. he's still like um he's still like uh, a rat getting glucose fed to right, him with right. these emails. Yep. Like, how does somebody like that um, uh, figure out that they're like lying to themselves, or they can't, or do you
1: think yeah. that they're too far that, that that they don't really want to know? That- I think it's it's a it's it's a lot of the latter. But the, the way that I walk people through that is this, if the same way you would walk someone through. Uh, initiating fat loss. But for it, instance it is the, kind, it's the it, it, same thing
0: as somebody who'd say I want to be a writer, right? Someone yeah. who's not forget the rich CEO, but the guy who's like I want to be a writer. I look at those people. Yeah. So what do you do? So is I that, think
1: that, I think that there are uh the I want fundamentally there there are there's starting behavior and stopping behavior and I think that the approaches are actually different if you want to catalyze either of those. In terms of the I'll, I'll talk about the executive on the plane um, first and then um, yeah, that's fine. And then uh, we'll do it. We'll do a part two, uh, which which would be fun because I'm enjoying this. But the for the executive, I think that the there are a few questions the, the, that you ask him or have him ask himself. And the first is, if you continue to do what you're doing, is it going to get six months from now? Will the problem be better or worse? Is the, is the volume of email going to decrease or increase? His answer is going to be increase. I'm like, okay, how much do you think it will increase? Right, a year from now. <laughs> Is probably going to be better or be worse? So at what point... point? And the conclusion, of course, it'll come to is at some point, he has to fix a broken system. Currently, he does not have a good process for dealing with this. And then you can make the argument very easily that you know a a an ounce of prevention or addressing it now is worth a pound of cure later and you you can show him the cost of inaction so by not making a decision you are making a decision and we can quantify what that's going to cost you in terms of health in terms of missing your kids growing up in terms of causing strife in your marriage in terms of ultimately leading to an implosion that will then take you out of your job we can financially assess the damage that that will do and when you when you sort of list down the cons of simply postponing the decision, you are often able to get someone to take a small step in the right direction. That's great,
0: and we'll end here. That is exactly uh, what I would say to somebody who wants to write and can't, is uh, how often are you snapping at your life partner now because you're frustrated, right? I mean, what's the toxicity? Where do you think that toxicity will be at soon? And as far as inaction, not deciding, one of my favorite quotes, and I think I said it once before in here, is, you know, the quote from Rush, Neil Peart. uh, If you choose not to decide... You still have made a choice. Tim Ferriss, um, where can people find you and interact with you and uh, get
1: sort of like the most 360 look at, at who you are? Yeah, the uh, I think the, the best place to start is probably the blog, which is just a four-hour blog, all spelled out, f o u r h o u r b l o g dot com. also have a podcast, which is the Tim Ferriss Show. It's top ten on iTunes, pretty fun, getting in all sorts of trouble. And then at T Ferriss on Twitter, two R's and two S's.
0: Great. I had wanted to talk about the process of starting your own you know, publishing uh, for Our Chef and how the bumps along the way and what you took from that. But uh, we can do that another time. Uh, thank you so much, Tim, for calling today. And I said before, and I wasn't as prepared as I would have been, um, which may have been your plan, uh, if, had I known that I had more time. But thanks a lot. Everybody, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Koppman at Twitter. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your ear balls, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes, or go to grantland.com and click
1: on Podcasts.